Alright, today the special guest is one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, his name is Mikey Venrick, or Michael Venrick, but everybody calls him Mikey in my book because he looks like a Mikey, he's not a Michael. Uh, Mikey, you're going by Mikey today, right? That's correct. Alright, good. Alright, well, hey, so I'm, uh, I'm really excited to have you on here. Um, we've hung out a bunch, we've had a lot of great discussions over the years, whether it's on politics, history, whatever it is. But um, today you're going to be, we're going to uh, have you discuss kind of your previous experience with heroin, one of the uh, stronger opioids out there. Um, so without further ado, let's let's get this started. So I guess to begin, um, what was your like beginning experience with recreational drugs? Yeah, well... First, I'd, I'd like to say thank you for having me. I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to be on the show, and uh, this, this is a, an awesome opportunity. Uh, my first experience with recreational drugs uh, was when I was in elementary school, and I had a friend who was in my grade, and, and he had an older brother who was a pothead, and his older brother was in high school. You know, and we're in elementary school. There's a gap. So he's cool as fuck. He was cool as fuck, dude. Yeah. Like, I can't even tell you how cool I thought this guy was. And uh, and my friend, you know, one day he asked me, you know, hey, have you, what do you know about, you know, pot? And I just started trying to think of words that might be associated with pot. You know, I was like, I think bong is a word. I think I've heard joint is, is bone. Bone, is that a thing? You know, just these like weird and I thought that it was so interesting. So for some reason, I thought it was fascinating, the idea that, that something like this even existed. And I clearly knew that it was wrong at the time because I wouldn't talk to my parents about it. Uh, but I, I didn't really know anything about it. It just seemed fascinating. And, uh, and so that's largely what it was for a while, was just kind of talking about it. And then uh, my, my friend, uh, he was able to steal some, you know, he pinched uh, a little bit of weed from his brother and uh, we smoked it and we made you know these little tinfoil pipes that uh, is very common for people who are either desperate or under the age of 13 and uh, and I didn't get high but like I didn't know what getting high meant or would look like so I assumed I was high and uh, <laughs> it just felt cool like it just felt really freeing and I hate to kind of rely on that old stereotype of like oh you know you get into drugs because drugs are cool. Um, but that's, the, the it, truth is, like, I, I, that's what I thought. You that's know? Mad Men. Yeah, I, you know, I, that's what I thought. And yeah. um, it wasn't until I, I was in sixth grade, and, you know, every now and then I had a friend who would, you know, steal some weed from a sibling or whatever. But in sixth grade, I actually, we had a connection where uh, through an older sibling, we, they would actually let us buy pot, and we would save up lunch money. And we bought some, and I smoked it, and I had kind of recently learned about inhaling, which is a pretty crucial part of getting high. <laughs> and uh, and I inhaled, and I coughed, and then it was like, I can't even really describe it. I mean, it felt like transporting in and out of another world. And suddenly I, I realized, like, whoa, okay, this is what it means to get high. This is totally different than anything I've ever experienced. That's kind of that's really where it all started for me. So middle school, sixth grade, you're you're rolling up joints, you're smoking. Yeah. Uh, 
So, how, how, you know, how would you describe, like, your experience throughout middle school then? Yeah, so middle school was, was weird for me because um, I had gotten interested in, in drugs and alcohol. Um, and, you know, at that time, most kids hadn't, right? That would come later. In fact, I, I spent a lot of time uh, getting stigma from different friends that I had had who, you know, uh, would... Uh, you know, criticized me for getting high or getting drunk on the weekend, whatever. Uh, but then, you know, years later in high school, they're doing the same stuff, right? Maybe even more than I was. Um, you were just before the. Before but I was just ahead time. of the curve. Yeah. And uh, and so it felt kind of weird. It, it felt kind of like being on the vanguard of something interesting and dangerous uh, that my peers just weren't into. And you know, I gravitated towards movies uh, that that I thought were really cool, that, um, you know, glorified drug use to some extent. Like what? Uh, well, a huge, hugely influential movie for me was SLC Punk. When I was in fifth grade, with I was introduced Lillard, to this Matthew movie Lillard. with Matthew Lillard. There you go. And his blue, spiky hair. <laughs> and uh, I thought that that was awesome. You know, I just love this idea of something that was outside of the norm, outside of the mainstream, that other kids weren't into, didn't know about, and uh, and was like intense and dangerous and exciting. And in that movie, they use LSD, which isn't really associated with punk culture very often. But in that movie, uh, you know, they, they showed that. And so I was fascinated by LSD. I really wanted to try it. I thought it was interesting, uh, scary. So, you know, in sixth grade, I'm, I'm smoking pot uh, on and off quite a bit. Uh, I'm experimenting with drinking, but I'm also trying things like in seventh grade, I tried uh, LSD for the first time. I, I tried my first line of cocaine for the first time. In um, seventh grade? In seventh grade, yeah. Uh, I was at a friend's house, and I had been telling him, I was reading the book Blow. I love the movie. I love Johnny Depp. Uh, <laughs> it was very influential, obviously. Or I was I was influenceable, obviously. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and I was talking to my friend and telling him, you know, man, if I could just get my hands on some cocaine, like that would be amazing. It looks so awesome. It looks so fun. And um, and one day, uh, you know, a friend of a friend uh, had stolen, a, you know, half gram of coke, really low quality garbage cocaine <laughs> from uh, from his mom uh, wow. in a trailer. I mean, you know, it's like it's. It's the kind of stuff that I look back on now and I go, that's sad. You know, <laughs> thinking about his experience. Um, but, you know, he stole it and he was looking to just unload it and make a quick few bucks. And then he could buy, you know, some booze or pot or whatever he wanted. Or an so, Xbox. Or, you know, yeah. I mean, it was 15 bucks. It wasn't a whole lot oh, of money. Okay. But, you well, know. Not, not an Xbox. Yeah, yeah. But, he, you know, he unloaded it on me and, uh, and I... We just cut it in half uh, into two fat lines, and uh, I let my buddy have one, and I had the other, and uh, it was exciting. You know, it was <laughs> it was a lot of fun, um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the really um, dangerous things about drugs is that no matter what, how you stack it, you know, even now I look back on my drug use and I, I loathe it, I regret it, I you know whatever. But it was fun and for kids that's so dangerous because kids are so easily uh influenced by looking for something that's cheap available fun yeah something that something that makes your day a little bit you know maybe you got a story maybe it's a little bit brighter somehow even though 
could be in some ways way darker. Because, yeah. But yeah, you know something something that hypes you up, something that gets you going. Yeah, and you know I didn't grow up in in a horrible home. You know I I grew up in a suburb and I I went through difficult things as a kid. Um, but the truth is like it it was a good family life. It wasn't this horrible family life. Um, and I remember a lot of times, you know, when kids, like I said, I was ahead of the curve. So kids would ask me like, why do you do that? You know, what's wrong with you that you have to do that? Get high, get drunk. And I would always tell them I'm bored. I'm depressed and I'm bored. And it is what it is. I'm looking for something to do. Yeah. That makes some sense. Okay. So seventh grade and you tried LSD at that time too, right? Yeah. I tried LSD. Uh, it was not all that it was cracked up to be. I had one hit. It was probably pretty, you know, low quality, um, but it was real. Um, and from what I remember, it was it was an experience that first time was just kind of like getting really, really high, and uh, and kind of losing track of where what my senses were capable of doing. Yeah, but I wasn't seeing elves and shit like that. You know, the the, the things that you hear about or see in the movies. It, it, frankly, none of my experiences with LSD were like that. But um, but I I would go on to do a, a lot more LSD. <laughs> <laughs> so then that kind of leads you into to high school. So middle school, you kind of you get introduced more in depth into other other drugs past marijuana, and then so what what was your experience like in high school? Yeah, so high school, uh, I got a girlfriend, which was, um, you know, really thrilling and exciting. And, you know, let's just say it, it took my mind off of drugs and alcohol for quite a while. You know, if, if a lot of my motivation was being bored, I, I wasn't that bored for a while. But eventually, um, you know, you get, you get kind of used to it. Um, you get into, you know, you might say a rut with, uh, with dating, but... It wasn't even really a rut. It was just more of like a routine. And so I started kind of looking back to, you know, pot and getting drunk to kind of um, give me some more thrills. You know, it, it started to be appealing again. And, uh, and then we broke up my sophomore year. And uh, <clears throat> it was really hard for me. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing at this point, like how hard it was for me at the time. But, you know, I was devastated. We dated for you know, almost three years, and uh, at that time, you just feel like you're never going to find love again. The world's all, ending. Yeah, the world's ending, all those cliches, and um, and I, I also wasn't a very um, emotionally stable person. So I, I didn't really know what to do, because all of my social activities revolved around her, and you know, you're in the middle of high school, and you haven't developed friendships yeah, I had plenty of friends, but they were very surfacey and kind of aloof. And um, you know, I'm looking to get get into a friend group and kind of find my way again. Mm -hmm. And that's when I uh, I happened to start hanging out with some guys that uh, that were the stoners. You know, they were of my class. They were the stoner kids. And I remember talking to one of them, and I said. I knew that he smoked a lot of pot, and we, we were smoking pot and hanging out. I said, you know, how often do you get high? And he said, every day if I can. And I said, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, I think I'd like to start doing that. Um, there really wasn't any more thought to it than that. Um, 
so that's when you know I kind of entered into the the super stoner hippie phase that seemingly almost every drug addict has gone through. Um, it's one of the things that you uh, realize when you're in recovery. You talk to people, and every person feels like they were the biggest stoner in the world. You know, they yeah. they were the biggest stoner that they'd ever met, and then they got hooked on something else. You know. And uh, and that's that's certainly how I felt, um, but but that's kind of where where that phase began. Okay, so you st- you start smoking marijuana, little reefer madness every day. Yeah, having a good time. Um, yeah. And so, does that does that get tired at some point? Like at some point, does that just not hit you the same way that it did, or where does it go from there? Yeah, eventually it, it did stop affecting me the way that, you know, it had uh, early on. I developed a pretty pretty big tolerance, and but that kind of came later than my experimentation with harder drugs. Uh, it, the way it started more so was because, um, you know, I, I tried a couple of hard drugs in seventh grade, but I really kind of faded away from that. And by this point, you know, I'm in sophomore year, and that same friend that I was talking about, uh, we developed a philosophy that was, you know, drugs come and they go, but you don't know when you're going to see them again. And so you might as well try everything once <laughs> while it's here. And then that way, you know, I mean, you can't get addicted to things because you, you don't know if you're going to see them again. You know, at that time, we could get pot easily. Um, but when it came to, you know, even things like LSD or mushrooms, that was, you know, kind of a, a rarer treat. And while it was here, you know, we'd buy a bunch of it, and we'd do a bunch of it, uh, but then we might not see it again for another month or two. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to rare drugs like, you know, DMT or ether or, um, you know, Coke and heroin, it's like those things weren't very frequently available. So we decided that we were gonna try everything at least once. DMT hits you like very quick, right? It's only like five, 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But it's, like, very strong. That's, yes. like, the drug that Joe Rogan likes to talk about, right? Yes. Uh, so, obviously, as a podcaster, you'll you'll have to try that at some point <laughs> if you want to be successful like Joe Rogan. Yeah. Um, yeah, DMT is it's crazy. I mean, that, that could have a show all of its own. Um, but, you know, junior year, uh, I'm well-developed and well-versed in the, you know, everyday stoner, hippie culture kind of stuff. And selling some pot selling some uh you know some some dank nugs and uh <laughs> and me and my buddies we were in the the car uh there was four of us i had this nice uh roar bong this uh, really expensive glass bong in the car and uh you know you have to understand that we'd never been caught by anyone but our parents and at a certain point when you're young you don't really realize that you even can get in trouble beyond your parents. I mean, you're aware of the police, and you're, you know, I was probably more paranoid than many about the police, but, you know, things like driving around in a car, smoking a bong, you know, not even a joint. I mean, a full-on glass piece that you can see from a mile down the road. Uh-huh. That's insane, but that's the kind of thing that we would do because we, we just didn't think, you know, there would be any consequences. So, you know, we're smoking and we get pulled over because my buddy didn't realize he's driving his dad's car and his dad forgot to renew his tags. Again, something, you know, a stoner doesn't think about when he's 16. Yep. <laughs> so we get pulled over and, you know, the cop at the time, I'm thinking, you know, we, we'd had the windows rolled down 
uh, driving. So we thought, you know, it's got to be aired out. But, you know, now I realize uh, that you can smell it easily for quite a while from quite a ways away. So the cop immediately knew walking up to the car that we'd been smoking. And uh, he searched the car. He found the stuff. I had to cop to the bong uh, and the weed that I had on me at the time in my pocket. And so uh, I ended up on probation. And the way that my probation worked was it was almost a year. Um, I guess I was 17 by this point because the, the probation was going to be until I was 18. Um, and so it ended up being like 11 months. And every month I'd have to get drug tested. And that drug test was a three-panel drug test. And it had three parts. Marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine. Now, for any young user of drugs you will immediately notice that there is one very conspicuous drug that is missing from those three panels. Yep. That is opiates. Yep. <laughs> uh, not meth. You know, this was way before meth. you got to understand that meth as a craze in Columbus is a relatively new phenomenon within the last couple of years. You know, I, maybe I'm kind of an old fart when it comes to drug use now, uh, but to me that's like still like the new kid in town. Um, at the time, it was, all, it was becoming all about prescription pills. I guess Xanax would be the other one that was obviously missing, but I, I hadn't had a lot of experience with Xanax. So, you know, prescription pills became uh, a, a major option, something that I really wanted to pursue because I didn't want to go to jail. I, you know, I didn't want to keep messing up uh, things legally. So I figured, well, I'll just do a bunch of prescription pills. Now, I didn't end up doing immediately as many prescription pills as you might think from the way I just set it up because... Uh, not long after that, I realized, well, okay, I can um, smoke pot for a couple weeks, but I'm a small guy with a fast metabolism. I can just chug water for like a week, and I'll easily pass any drug test um, because the fat in my body, I mean, it, there was just nothing there for, for the pot to stay in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went back to smoking pot, and I got the Wizenator contraption to beat <laughs> the drug test when I got tired of even taking a week off of smoking. And, you know, but I, but I had brought pills i had brought opiates into my uh, repertoire as it were uh, for drug use something that i developed a taste for so what which pills were you were you trying first like was it oxycontin was it was it some other form like morphine pill or what what, what were you getting into yeah so at the time it was uh it was largely percocets percocets Okay. So, you know, Vicodin was obviously pretty popular, but at this time, Oxycontin and Vicodin were not as prevalent as Percocets. Perk 5s, Perk 10s, Perk 20s were the king. Uh, those, those were pretty common at the time. Um, I guess I should backtrack a little bit. Okay. Because this, this is kind of important to, uh, to understanding the way that once I began to incorporate opiates um, into my life, uh, it, it kind of it, it spun out of control. Because when I was in eighth grade, I was in gym class playing basketball. Mm -hmm. And I jumped to get the ball, and I was not a coordinated kid. So I jumped in. Well, You're I not ju a coordinated I, man. Uh, that's well. That's true. Uh, yes. So nothing has changed there. So I jumped to uh, to actually defend. I was trying trying to block uh, a kid's shot, and I whiffed. I missed blocking him. Not only that, I fell down to the ground, and I I I don't know how I did it. I fell 
basically with my ass on my ankle. And it snapped in two places. So I got this broken ankle. Take me to the hospital. I'm, uh, I'm 13 at the time. This was at the end of my, my time in middle school. And I'm, you know, screaming in pain. I guess screaming is a little strong, but I'm just, you know, give me something. Like, I'm in so much pain. Can you do something to make this go away? And, you know, 10 years before that, 20 years before that, they'd have given me Tylenol, right? Yeah. But this was not that time. This was the time when, uh, you know, prescription pills were beginning to be overprescribed. Not yeah. only that, but I got intravenous Dilaudid, which is basically morphine. Uh, and they, they gave that to me to kill the pain, and I fell in love. I mean, I've <laughs> never... I'd never had an experience like that. I knew immediately the moment that they put it into my arm that I found the greatest thing that had ever existed. So fast forward uh, to the time when I'm using pills and I'm not using pills all the time, uh, but I like them. Now concurrently, black tar heroin was beginning to come into uh, my high school. I had a friend who was uh, in the grade above me and he was selling black tar heroin um and you know at the at the time even among us even among the stoners that had a really negative connotation uh, but not so negative that we wouldn't try it once because <laughs> again that was the rule not too you, negative you try it once yeah. i mean you know we we looked down on him for that but not so much that we wouldn't try it and uh and so you know we tried shooting it up and then and then another time he gave me a free sample um and, and he, I snorted it. Um, and I really liked it a lot. I loved it. It reminded me of Dilaudid. But I didn't want to become, you know, a junkie. So I was like, there's kind of a line in the sand. Like, I'm not going to keep doing heroin. What, what do you remember those experiences, though, doing heroin for the first time? Yeah, so the first time that I did heroin... Um... What? All right, so you're saying your, your first experience with heroin. So my first experience with heroin, there was a guy who was a punk rocker, ironically, uh, at my high school who left for the West Coast. He ran away from home, which when I got to high school, it kind of turned out that that's all punks really did was run away from home, so I wasn't really into that so much anymore. Uh-huh. He runs away from home in a van, goes to the West Coast, lives as a you know vagrant, gets addicted to heroin, comes back to Columbus so he's not in with the guy who's selling heroin at the high school uh, but he comes back and he's kind of trying to do something similar and uh, and we decided okay you know we'll uh, man it's been so long since we've hung out we'll go ahead and you know try what you got so he uh, he goes ahead and <clears throat> he cooks up a shot for my buddy he shoots up and uh, and he says, you know, oh man, this really reminds me of, uh, of shooting coke. Um, it sounds like everybody's voices is like robotic. And I'm just kind of watching him like, I hadn't shot coke before, that was something he did without me. Uh, so I'm going like, what is this, what is going on here? What is this like? So then the guy cooks up uh, a shot for me and immediately uh, I got really sick um, and I felt amazing. It was like the first time that I got drunk, where I'm puking my guts out, and I got the biggest smile on my face you've ever seen. 
Uh-huh. I just feel amazing. I mean, everything is warm and uh, literally like fuzzy, and you know, you feel the rush and and all that stuff. And I'm I'm just having a great time. So then, after he fixes us shots, the guy with the van fixes himself a shot, uh, and then he fixes his girlfriend a shot. This girl was probably not much older than we were, um, but you know, she looked she looked like she'd been through some things. Uh, so he fixes up her shot. She shoots up, and she immediately falls out. Uh, she's like out cold, and we're like, "What the fuck?" Uh, and our buddy's saying. Don't worry, this happens to her every time. Which, at the time, worried me. Uh, it now worries me, too. It should, <laughs> al- it should always yeah. worry you. That's not a good sign. No. I don't know what her deal was. But she immediately falls out. She doesn't start turning blue. But she is catatonic nothing. You know, he's slapping her. He's yelling her name. Well, why are you doing it? We're in the living room. Yeah, I, I don't know. We're in the living room of my buddy's house, and, you know, his parents are away, but they're not going to be away forever. Uh, so we start getting kind of concerned, like, you know, is this a Pulp Fiction? Like, is this bitch fucking dying on us, man? Uh, so he's slapping her. He's calling out her name, trying to wake her up. We're realizing, you know, it's not going to be that long before your parents are going to get back, man. What are we going to do? And he keeps saying, oh, you know, if this happens every time, it's all right. This is normal. She's fine. She'll be up and okay soon. And we're, you know, starting to freak out a little bit. Eventually, she does come to. She wakes up. We did not have, you know, an OD situation, I guess. I don't know what it was. Uh, And then we're like, okay, hey, man, you got to clean up your shit. You got to get out because if his parents come home and they see you guys here, it's going to get weird, right? Because you two, no offense, you look like the people the parents should be worried about. Yeah. So you got to get out of here. And he's like, hold on, man. Uh, whenever she, like, falls out and then wakes up, she has to suck my dick. And we're thinking, what? What does that even mean? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know if I know English. What are you talking about? <laughs> And he goes, it doesn't make sense. it's it's just the way it is. It's not even me. It's her. When she falls out like that and then she wakes up, she's just got to suck my dick That's immediately. Uh, so they go off to the bathroom and do that. Meanwhile, you know, we're, you know, we're still high, but like it's uh, it, it's kind of, you know, uh, it, we're not peaking anymore. We're kind of more coherent and we're freaking out that his parents are going to come home. I don't know what the hell to make of, uh, of that whole thing. Um, but needless to say, my, my first experience with shooting up heroin was unique. Uh, it was different. Uh, it was different than anything I'd ever done before. And I left that experience going, that was a little too close for comfort. A, it was too close for comfort with how much I loved it. B, too close for comfort with, if that's the kind of shit that's going on when it comes to doing heroin... I don't think I can hang, you know. I don't. I don't think that I can. Uh, I can. I can do all of this on the regular. Yeah. No. That's that's fair. It's that's a wild story. So, so, so you have these couple of experiences. Um, you're doing pills as kind of the 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 probation is going on, and you're trying to get around it. So, where does it go from there? 
So from there, I got a job. Well, I had a job working at a pet store. And at the pet store, it was all the employees, for the most part, were stoners. So uh, whether, you know, my shift managers were older than me, but they were also stoners. And so we could buy weed from them. You know, we would hang out with them. We'd drink with them. You know, it was uh, it was an ideal uh, job for a 17-year-old stoner. And I'm working this job, and I get transferred. Now, when I get transferred, it's actually to a location closer to me, but the boss really sucked, and I, I didn't like it as much. But ironically, I started working with uh, the older brother of my ex-girlfriend, the girl that I was talking about. You know, that she, broke your heart. Broke my heart, sophomore year. That her older brother is working with me. And I always thought, you know, he seemed like a cool guy. I always thought I'd, I'd like to be friends with him. Um, but, you know, it's when you're dating the guy's younger sister, he's not exactly interested in hanging out with you. Yeah. But now we're just peers. You know, we're coworkers. Well, he had been in OSU. He had been at OSU in Newark. So that's the campus you can go to if you don't want to do Columbus State, but you want to get into OSU proper you got to spend a year basically in jail at OSU Newark. Mm -hmm. So he had been doing that. But before he did that, he had gotten hooked on heroin. And I didn't know that. So he comes back now, and he's getting his old job back. You know, he's kind of getting reconnected with everybody. And, uh, and he starts asking me for a guy's number, the phone number of the same guy that I said was selling black tar at my high school. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, man, you know, that's that guy – Things have changed since you were here. That guy's not like such a good guy anymore. You know, he's selling heroin. Well, like if you're looking for, you know, some pot, I, I'd be happy to hook you up. You know, I can help you out all day. And he said, you know, yeah, I, I know he sells heroin. That's what I'm looking for. So immediately I'm intrigued because to me, this guy seemed like his life was going fine. He was doing all right. And he's talking about, you know, using heroin. Now, I'm not immediately like, oh, I want to use heroin. In fact, I, I definitely did not want to. Um, I didn't want to get back into that. I didn't want to risk it like I was saying with my first experience. Mm -hmm. But uh, one day he's talking to me and he says, hey, man, I got a monkey on my back. I got to get uh, something. I'm, I'm withdrawing. I need Oxycontin. Can you help me out? So... I want to help the guy out. You know, he's miserable. I like Oxycontin. So I start, but it, it wasn't super available at the time. So I start, you know, putting out feelers. I'm trying to find somebody who can get this guy Oxy. I'm also looking at it as, you know, this is the lesser of two evils. So like, you know, maybe he, this guy can just kind of switch to Oxys and that would be better. I was very wrong about that assumption of the lesser of two evils. But that was my thinking at the time. Yeah. So we managed to track down uh, an Oxy-40. Maybe it was an Oxy-80. Um, and we split it up. He gets the monkey off his back, and I get loaded for the night. And uh, and the next day, he apologized to me and said, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I was really fiending, and it was really selfish of me to kind of, like, push that on you and, and to, to make you, you know, come through with that. But really, what I left with the experience was, I really like that Oxy. That was, that was, pretty, that was pretty dope. Uh, I'd like to get more of that. Um and so, you know, going to going to school with uh, this classmate of mine, he's selling Perk Fives out of a sandwich bag. He's walking around. I mean, he's got at least 100 pills in a sandwich bag at all times. Turns out he was selling for somebody else. 
So I'm buying them for uh, for cheap from him every day after school uh, because oxys are not so easy to find. But you know these Percocets were available, so I start doing those like every day. And then uh, you know I'm talking to uh, this coworker of mine, and he says, you know, really heroin is the same thing. It's just cheaper, and it's more available. And I said, okay. You know what? I'll cop with you. You know, if you're gonna go cop some dope, you know, count me in for half. Whatever you get, you know, I'll get uh, another. Uh, the deal at the time was uh, two bags for 35 bucks. So we split it, and uh, and we'd go in the the bathroom in the back of where we worked, and we'd snort dope and hang out high all day. Uh, that was a pretty good deal for me. Uh, I liked that a lot. <clears throat> Until I was at a party. Uh, now, you know, we're, we've fast forwarded now to I'm graduating and I'm at a party uh, and maybe graduating, something like that. I don't know. Time is fuzzy. I'm at this party and uh, I get there. I'm not looking to drink, but I was late because I was copping dope. So I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to smoke a joint that I brought. I'm going to have a beer and I'm going to be snorting dope in the bathroom and, you know, doing that. I'm not going to tell anybody about it because I know that they'd probably judge me for it. Yeah. I get halfway through my beer. I haven't even snorted any more dope. I haven't smoked any pot. And the cops show up. Just my luck. I'm half a beer in, and uh, I might get busted for having possession of heroin. Uh, and, you know, I was still on probation at the time. So I try to run. Well, they knew where I would try to run, so there were cops there. And they round us up, and uh, you know, at this point, I don't know what it is. I assume it has to do with your heart rate. I'm not sure, but when you need to sober up on dope, it gets stronger, way stronger. So I'm trying to act sober in front of these police, and I'm literally nodding, standing up. You know, I'm nodding off, standing up, doing the whole head bobbing thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm nodding off cops are, you know, trying to catch as many kids as they can. I stand over a grate. I tell one of the kids who was next to me, you know, a girl who's a friend of mine. I said, I got shit on me. I don't know what to do. She said, you know, drop it in the grate. I'll cover you. So she kind of positions her body in a way that, uh, that I was able to pull it out of my pocket and I threw the dope down, uh, like a sewer grate kind of thing. Uh, so that was disaster averted but needless to say being at the party i told them i had half a beer they said on my report that i admitted to having six that's the way the police worked uh so i'm i'm in violation of my probation i end up having to go to higher courts it's a whole thing i decided i'm not going to use i'm not going to use heroin ever again that was way too close a call and then uh of course you get out of probation, you know, you, you get your legal stuff expunged, and you go, why not? Why, why not do it Fuck again? It. Fuck yeah. it. Uh, I'd like to do that again. So that's when I, I went and I celebrated after graduating high school with some heroin, and I went back every day after that. Okay, so this is when it, it starts getting serious. So, like... You're doing heroin every day at this point. 
Yeah. Uh, you're like, what, 18, just out of high school? Yeah. So, what, I mean, what's it like the first, you know, go around, like, you, you're, you, you haven't built up too much of a tolerance. Yeah. You're experiencing the full high of the drug that you're taking. Um, is it, I mean, euphoric? What, what's your experience when you're on, on heroin uh, in these early days? Like, is it just, you know, kind of the best feeling you've ever had? Is it, what's it like? Yeah, so starting off with heroin, uh, now I wasn't, I wasn't shooting it up. I was snorting it at the time. And that's a different experience. Yeah. Um, when you snort it, uh, first of all, you know, it burns your nose. Um, which you hate at first, and then you love. And then if it doesn't burn, you go, this shit sucks. Okay? Uh, and you don't get the rush. When you snort it, you don't get the rush that you get with shooting it up. So it comes on more like a pill, but a lot faster. So, you know, if you take a pill, it might take, you know, half an hour to, get real, to be really feeling it. You know, if you snort it, it might take three to five minutes. Uh, if I had to guess, it's been a long time. Uh, so when it comes on, it's, it's much more mild, but it's, it's also, you know, kind of longer lasting. And I wouldn't describe it as having been the best feeling in the world, although I, it probably was for me at the time. I wouldn't really describe it in that way. It was more like uh, turning everything negative off. You know, if you imagine that you're walking around... Uh, all the time with a headache uh-huh. it's not until someone takes that headache away from you that you realize you had a headache to begin with mm-hmm. you're just walking around and it sucks but somebody takes that headache away from you you feel that relief that that euphoric relief that's more what it was like you know i mean you get high you feel loaded uh it's you know you, you feel um, sensations in your body, whatever. But I think that that's really, in a lot of ways, what I was chasing was not just the body high. That was nice, a nice byproduct. But I was chasing that relief. The relief. Okay. So, as as kind of your post high school adulthood is kind of starting, um, and you're taking heroin every day. What what's going on at this point? Yeah, so at this point, um, it's not just me. It's a couple of friends uh, of mine. And, and, you know, it's funny and also tragic. You know, at the time, um, it was like I was going to the dope house, like, every day for a few days. Uh, But, you know, the first time was with another friend of mine. We said, hey, let's just go, you know, celebrate with some heroin. Let's do it. So we went to the dope house together, we copped together, we came home, we did it together, whatever. The next day I I wake up and I go, man, I really want some more. That was awesome. (laughs) So I go back to the dope house. You know, I do this a few days in a row, and then finally I talk to my buddy and I'm like, hey man, you know, I went back to the dope house. And he goes, oh my God, me too. I've been every day since. (laughs) And I go, ah, yes, you get me. You understand. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of how it... it's really tragic when you look back on it, but honestly, at the time, it felt kind of like this like young, blossoming love. I don't really know how to describe it. It felt like it felt like everything was easy and carefree. I graduated high school. I don't have to do school anymore. Uh, and 
I'm just, you know, having fun in the summer. And uh, heroin is my my buddy uh, as I do that. Um, but for me, unfortunately, or I, I, yeah, I suppose unfortunately, I, I have bad sinuses. It's still to this day, my nose gets clogged really easily. Um, so what happened was I got, I started to get to a point where snorting the heroin uh, was too difficult. Um, you know, cause it's, it's, even though it's water, cause you actually put the heroin into water when it's black tar to mix it up. And then that way you're able to snort it. Uh, for some reason at a certain point, my nose was just clear or clogged up and I couldn't get high anymore. <clears throat> so then I got a problem, which is I'm hooked on this stuff by this point. You know, it only took like a month and, uh, I got a habit, um, but I can't get high. So... I went over to a friend's house, and he's got a bag of 100 freshies, you know, needles, uh, diabetic needles, insulin needles. And uh, he says, hey, man, you should just shoot it up. Like, that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm not going to do this forever, wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, just right now, it's awesome. And I go, you know what? I shot it up once before, and that was sweet. And I can't get high snorting it. I don't know why. I could smoke it, but maybe I should shoot it up. So I uh, I tried it again, and that was it. I would never snort it, not even one more time uh, after that. After I shot it up, uh, that that became the only way that I would ever do it, um, and uh, and that really, yeah, that that really takes the game to another level. I don't know what it is about the needle exactly, but. You know that that's it, that's kind of that's game high. over. Yeah. So, I mean, is it like just it hits so much quicker? Or oh is yeah, it like it hits immediately. You you know, I'd go into the bathroom and you tie off with a belt, and I had uh, bad veins because I wasn't very active, so my cardiovascular you know system isn't great. But I was skinny, so I was able to find veins for a while, and uh, you know, you find a vein. You, you put in the needle, um, you draw a little blood to make sure that the suck, you know, the, the flow is going to be okay because you don't want to just be pushing down uh, heroin under your skin. It gives you an abscess. Um, so, you know, you pull out a little bit of blood just to make sure that it's flowing properly. You see that blood. I can't, I can't describe how good even just seeing the blood come out of your veins feels because you know what's coming next. Next, mm. you push down the plunger and... Boom, it's, uh, you raise your arm, you loosen the belt, and that allows it to start flowing in. And immediately you start to feel a warm flush under your skin, your heart starts to beat a little bit, uh, and then you feel this feeling and you, there's this taste. I can't describe it, but it's in the back of your throat. And it just hits like a brick, you know, unless you've got a high tolerance and you can't get enough dope and you're just trying to be well. And then, you know, it's really not that flashy. But when you've got, you know, a big hit, uh, that rush just hits you. And uh, I there was a time where I was also getting Dilaudid pills um, because... I, Which I, is I, morphine, basically, right? Yeah, and I met a guy in, in a class in, uh, in college, and he was prescribed these Dilaudid pills, but he didn't really do them that much, so he'd sell a good amount of them. I don't know why he had them. It was very strange. These little yellow pills and uh and i would crush those and the reason i bring that up is because the rush is uh much more intense it just doesn't last as long uh so whereas heroin you know it's got it's got a rush 
and then it extends uh, the high for a while. Uh, the Dilaudid would come on with a rush that was so much more intense, but it would last, I mean, you know, the peak is like 10 minutes. But it was actually so strong, I used to do this thing where when I would release the needle, I'd lift up my arm and then I'd immediately stand up and try to walk forward because I'd noticed that the rush from the Dilaudid would actually hit me in the back of the knees and would I would buckle, my legs would buckle and I would fall to the ground. And there was just something about that as being part of my ritual. It, it was almost like, I, I guess it was kind of putting the Dilaudid to the test. Like, is this strong enough to knock me to the ground? Uh, and usually it was. Huh. That's interesting. So, so, you, so you're um, using needles at this point to, to inject heroin into your system. Um, how long does it take for you to start building kind of a tolerance? It didn't take long. Um, you know, I would say that, that my tolerance grew, uh, pretty quickly. I, I really don't have a good timeline for you. Um, but I know that I can say kind of overall, my tolerance grew quite a bit. Um, but I stopped being able to get enough money to, uh, to feed my addiction and so at a certain point, you know, all I'm doing is just getting well. I'm not really getting high almost ever uh, at a certain point because I can't get more than, you know, 0.3, like three bags, three balloons. Um, I can never really scrape more than that together in one day. And I can't make it through the day. I would just always fold, you know, it's somebody would, somebody who uh, had, you know, self-control which is an ironic word in uh, the world of addiction but somebody had self-control they might be able to uh, to wait a day right go through the misery but then be able to get high the next day because they're shooting up twice as much but I could never do that you know I just I could I would always cave and uh, and I buy uh, you know a lesser amount that would really just kind of keep me from getting sick whereas a lot of other guys especially you know if they're if they're dealing even to a small extent uh, you know, I'd say the entry level of dealing is uh, is really just gathering uh, a large purchase with your friends. So say you got, I knew guys like this, you got seven friends who want to go in together. Well, you know, you buy in bulk, you get it cheaper, right? And so you're not really dealing per se because you're dependent on everyone to buy every day and to get their money together and you got to coordinate it. Um, but if you do that, you might get several bags extra every day. And so, you know, guys were able to uh, to just continue to, to increase their doses more and more every day. They might have a tolerance of, you know, shooting a gram in a shot or more. But I never got to that point, not so much because, uh, because I didn't use long enough, but more so because I never got my shit together enough in the drug game to be able to compete and, uh, and, and be able to do that much. I was a driver. Um, and that, you know, kind of saying it like that sounds like a real job. It wasn't. It was very informal. Uh, I drove as needs arose. You know, if guys, if a, if a dealer needs me to drive to go cop, um, you know, his, uh, his shit, then he's calling me up and he's offering me a couple bags for free. And I got, you know, 20 bucks. I'm getting, you know, a couple more bags on top of that, whatever. Um, but you know, I was never, I was never a dealer, or God forbid, you know, a prostitute or something where I was generating income to be able to, to really spike my tolerance the way that you, you probably hear a lot of other guys talk about their tolerance. 
So at a certain point, just continuously just getting back to normal by taking enough heroin. Yeah. Does that get frustrating at a certain point because you don't you don't want to just get well, you want to get high? Yeah. Frustrating is putting it mildly. Oh. Um be hard to describe how despairing and painful it is just trying to get well um you know it probably sounds kind of corny uh now but at the time um i really meant it um i used to actually have a nickname for myself uh that i would call myself and that was can't get right and that's because i really felt like every single day i just can't get right i can't get enough i can no matter what i do i'm trying to feed this beast and i'm you know running around doing whatever i can and yet it's just never enough and uh, and i never feel even when i you know quote unquote get well i never feel well you know you talk about i talked about that sense of relief right uh this this you know escape to a place where i'm getting away from problems well what happens if your whole life revolves around something that causes you nothing but problems and you never get relief anymore? You know, that's how it felt. That's how it felt. That makes sense. So, so what does this... This got to break... This sounds like it brings you to a crossroads. Yeah. So what is this crossroads that you're getting to? Yeah, so I continue to use for a couple of years. and Just to get well. Yeah, just to get well. And uh, I get to this point where I start seeing the writing on the wall. You know, I can either um, I can either get clean, I can get arrested, I can sell dope, although I didn't have a plug, so that would have been difficult. Uh, but I could have made it happen. Um, I can, uh, or I can, you know, I actually never thought about this, but realistically, I could have whored myself out. Um, I was too afraid of the legal consequences to actually... Oh, or I could rob people. I can't, I can't believe I forgot that one. That one was I was the closest to doing. I was very close to just trying to rob... You know, I was going to start with addicts. I was going to try to rob people as they were coming out of a dope dealer's house and uh, just take their shit that they bought. Like with a gun or... Well, I didn't have a gun. I had a knife. Uh, I guess I figured I would use a knife. I'd try to be intimidating at uh, five foot six uh, and, you know, <laughs> 95 pounds soaking wet. I don't know how well that would have worked, but in my mind, I was getting desperate enough that I figured, you know, I'll, I'll make anything happen at this point. Um, so I, I really contemplated ripping uh, guys off, but honestly, the only thing that stopped me from that wasn't even, you know, fear of getting the shit kicked out of me or anything like that. It was the fear that the guy, I don't want to shit where I eat. The guys that I know I could, you know, hang outside their house and rob people are the guys that I buy dope from. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to turn into Omar from The Wire because <laughs> unlike Omar, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't have the uh, the network and the system and, and frankly, you know, the balls. So. Did that ever happen to you? Did somebody ever, like, no, no. that never happened to you? No, I, I never. I mean, you'd get, you know, ripped off. Uh, but not not like at the end of a gun. Uh, okay. That that never happened to me, um, which is kind of surprising. But uh, you know, I think again, you know, I was coming from a suburban background. Uh, people didn't necessarily have money, but people also weren't necessarily 
out and out thieves like that. You yeah. know, I just I don't I don't I'm not sure what it was, but but that never happened to me. So um, between kind of but people would you know hook you up with something and then they would never show up, you know, and then you lose your money and then that happened. But yeah, so between like robbing, getting arrested, and getting clean, what yeah. what was your choice at this point? Yeah, well, I was I was too afraid of the consequences of going to jail. I was terrified of the idea of being, you know, withdrawing in a cell. I really, I that that thought just terrified me. And um, I know that you know a lot of people, a lot of people would say, you know, oh man, like that's that's the baseline. You know, that that's when you're really just starting in the game. Um, and that may be true, uh, but for me, that that was a barrier to entry then. Um, I, I just couldn't do it. Um, so at that point, I decided I'm not going to get clean, clean, but I'm going to cut back. So what does cutting back look like? Well, ideally, my goal was I'm going to get to a point where I'm using once a month. If I can use once a month, then, uh, then that, that's a perfect life. I'll use heroin once a month for the rest of my life, and I'll be happy. Um, and if that were that's possible... That's lying to yourself. That's yeah, just absolutely... Yeah. If that were possible, uh, then I, I have a hard time believing that I wouldn't have done it, you know, because yeah. I really tried and I really wanted to. But that's just not possible. Yeah. Um, so, so it started, though, with I just need to, uh, to lower my tolerance enough to be able to use, you know, once a month and only have to use a little bit. You know, it's just win, 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 right? Oh, I'll just use once a month. My tolerance will be so low. I won't even need much. I'll get high. It'll all be great. Um, but then what you go through is a series of chronic relapses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm putting together half a day clean, one day clean, two days clean, maybe three. Uh, but then, you know, you're saving up enough money potentially to uh, be able to go out and, and relapse good and right. Um, so I was chronic, chronically relapsing for months. Um, and then I decided to do I did everything all wrong. I can't really describe how wrong I did everything, but but here's one good example. Mm-hmm. I got to the point where I decided I am getting off of this train. And my grandfather was um, ill with cancer and he was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Now his house was a couple of blocks away from my house. I knew that that house was gonna be empty for at least three days. I decided I had a bottle of sleeping pills, had a bottle of red wine and I had cigarettes and pot and I went over to my grandfather's house while he was in the hospital and I just tried to sleep the whole withdrawal off I didn't go to rehab (laughs) I didn't do a 12-step program I didn't do I didn't even have another soul to talk to Uh, by this point all my relationships were burned and damaged you know my mother was pretty much the only one who was I was still on good terms with Um, but I went to that house and I spent three days just eating sleeping pills drinking wine smoking and sleeping and by the end of it you know I wouldn't recommend that to a single other person ever but I will say I got through the withdrawals I don't know how it worked but it did I got through Um, so then you know you know, I had a few rough days after that, but but not the, the hellish nightmare stuff. So then after that point, um, I just started drinking every day, all day, and uh, and smoking pot. 
And at the time, I felt I felt like I was clean. I felt like I was free. Um, but of course, now looking back with you know ten years of experience, I see that I was only setting myself up to relapse. You know, I was setting myself up for a much worse condition. You see it all the time with guys where they get a little bit of time, but they don't actually do things right. And then when they go back, they go way harder, they go way deeper than they ever did before. And that's where I was headed. Okay. Well, that that's very interesting. Obviously, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a scary place to be where you're, you know, you're getting off this drug, you're, you're, you know, just cutting yourself off completely, but you're, you're building, or you're using other substances to kind of fill that void with, with the alcohol and weed, um, just to try to hold yourself at, at, at keeping off heroin. Is that correct to say? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a wild point to be at, obviously. Um, it seems like that's going to be the end of today's kind of episode because it's 8.50 here. Um, so stay tuned next week. We're going we're gonna to do a, another uh, part two to this interview where we're going to discuss um, where Mikey's you know, drug use went from here, what recovery you know, looked like, um, and kind of some of the, the life experiences that came along with it. So tune in next week for that. Um, and uh, thanks for listening again, guys. Uh, this guy, you know, just to give you some uh, story outside of the, the drug story, this guy's, you know, one of, one of the greats in my life. Um, I've known him for about four years now. He's been clean um, from heroin this whole time. <laughs> um, yeah. But he's... Uh, great to talk to about politics and history and just really open about his life and his life experiences so uh if you ever see yourself in a opportunity to get to know uh mikey or hang out with him or talk to him i'd take that opportunity i'd recommend that to anyone because he's he's just he's been one of my best friends uh these last four years even though you know we've had some ups and downs but we've had mostly just a lot of great conversation, a lot of great football games that we've watched together. Oh yeah, um, and yeah. But uh, tune in again next week. We're gonna we're gonna kind of dive deeper into um, the continuation and the recovery um, that Mikey had. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening again, guys. Uh, it's time to be frank. All right. So you just listened to uh, my first interview with Mikey where he was talking about being a drug user and how he developed an addiction to heroin um, and kind of how that relationship progressed. Um, the other thing that we wanted to hit on today and that I really wanted to hit on today is the opioid crisis. It has impacted millions of lives in this country. It's a very serious issue and it's something I've been learning a lot about in the last couple weeks. Um, so just to get a better grasp, I think it's important everybody gets a grasp on what is going on here and because it is going to have some sort of impact in your life, whether you know it or not, um, as you are prescribed um, drugs from a doctor, it's important to kind of be aware
of what the dangers could be, especially with certain types of drugs, specifically the opioids. Um, so that's something uh, I really wanted to dig into here. So um, to kind of give everybody a general basic understanding of the opioid crisis and what these drugs are, the opioids, um, I, I kind of built a little bit of an outline here. So, uh, but before we get into that, I do want to I do want to point to two important questions that I think everybody should um, somewhat consider. So, the first one being human beings desire experiencing positive emotions and feelings. What sacrifices are we willing to make to experience pleasure? Or happiness I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves um, and, and think about and then the other question um, that that I wanted to point towards was how important is treating pain should we avoid pain at all costs what does a healthy relationship with physical pain look like um, I think those are two questions that are kind of at the center of this whole topic um, something to consider um, as you know as you think about these topics so to start um, I wanted to define a couple terms um, to give people kind of a basic understanding of what these drugs are so one of the beginning drugs to, to really dig into here is opium so opium is a depressant drug which means it slows down the messages traveling between your brain and body. The opium poppy, so like what you would see in poppy seed bagels, the, those poppy seeds are, are part of the same plant, um, from which opium is derived. So the, the pop of our somniferum, that's a Latin word for the, for the plant, from which opium is derived is one of the earliest plants of which there is recorded medicinal use. Evidence of opium cultivation by the Sumerian people dates back to 3,400 before Common Era. Although some scholars believe opium use predates Sumerian culture, opium poppy pods hold a milky substance called latex that contains a number of chemicals, including morphine and codeine. Latex is extracted from the opium, pod, opium pods and dried to create opium. Typically, it is further refined by boiling and drying, boiling and drying again. That's from the Alcohol and Drug Foundation. So that gives you kind of a basic understanding of what opium is. Um, now, opioids include any drug that acts on opioid receptors in the brain, and any natural or synthetic drugs derived from or related to the opium poppy. Opiates are a subset of opioids which are naturally derived from the opium poppy plant rather than synthetic substances. Opioids bind to opioid receptors, which depress the central nervous system and slow down messages traveling between the brain and the body. This slows down breathing and heart rate. Opioid receptors also stimulate the release of dopamine, which leads to sensations of pleasure and pain relief. If a person breathe, if a person's breathing and heart rate slows down to a certain point, they may stop breathing and an overdose can occur. Opioid overdose can result in death and other injuries, but can be reversed by CPR and 
and naloxone administration. So that's also from the Alcohol and Drug Foundation. Um, so one thing to kind of keep in mind, because it, it's really hard to keep track of kind of the strength of all these drugs, right? So um, now some people might hate Wikipedia as a source. I think Wikipedia um, does, for the most part, a great job. Um, and I did a lot of research with Wikipedia. I've also been watching the uh, Hulu series Dope Sick, which if you haven't checked out, you should. It's it's a great show. Um, and then I also checked out the HBO documentary Crime of the Century, um, which that is a really deep dive into the opioid crisis. If you get a chance, check it out. It's two episodes. They're two hours each, so it's about four hours total. And it gives you a really holistic view of this crisis. Um, so those are a lot of the sources that I'm working with. I also did some internet research outside of Wikipedia. Um, went to some different drug-related websites um, to kind of get an understanding about this. Um, but this this source specifically, um, it's called the Equi, Equienolgesic. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. But basically what it is, is it's telling you the, pot the difference in potency of these different opiates. So um, going through this, this chart that I was able to find, um, opium, so, so the, the comparison here is to 10 milligrams of oral morphine. That is what each of these drugs are getting compared to. So opium oral um, is one-tenth of the strength of oral morphine. So to get the equivalent dose of 10 milligrams of oral morphine um, for oral opium, you would need 100 milligrams, okay? Um, another drug that's going to come up here, oxycodone, um, is 1.5 times the strength of oral morphine, okay? So um, an equivalent dose to 10 milligrams of oral morphine would be 6.67 milligrams of oxycodone. Um, now, another drug that we've, t we've already talked about in this episode, diamorphine or heroin, um, is four to five times the strength of oral morphine. So two to 2.5 milligrams of heroin it, it, through an IV would be, um, would be equivalent to 10 milligrams of oral morphine. And then an even stronger drug um, that I'm sure many of us have heard about, fentanyl, is 50 to 100 times the strength uh, relative to oral morphine. And so 0 0.1 milligrams of fentanyl would be equivalent to 10 milligrams of oral morphine. What that does is that gives you um, kind of a basis of understanding the strength of these drugs. Opium is is much weaker than morphine morphine is about equivalent but not quite equivalent to oxycodone um, when it's taken orally um, and then heroin is is like double or or uh, close to triple oxycodone in that way so heroin is four to five times as strong as as taking morphine orally and fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger um, 
than taking oral morphine. So that gives you kind of the picture of how these drugs differ. They're, they're of the same like family. They're from the same plant. Okay. Um, but the strength is what really varies, right? So opium has long been a controversial drug that has caused conflict. Um, between China and Great Britain in the uh, 1800s, there were the Opium Wars, which were two wars that they had. Um, basically, Britain and France were trying to make sure that they could sell opium to the Chinese people, but the government was kind of getting the, the Chinese government was kind of getting fed up with it. Um, so they had they had wars over this specific drug. Um, Britain, because they had a more advanced military at the time, was able to win, and so they continued to um, sell opium into China, the mainland China, after these wars. But this is a drug that has has brewed wars, right? And even in the mild form, such as opium, right? So modern technology and science has led to opiates with increased potency. Morphine, um, which are common like prescription morphine, was uh, really developed around 1817. Heroin being developed around 1874, but didn't really um, catch on. Like nobody really used it till um, really the early 1900s. Um, and then fentanyl in 1959. Morphine was an isolated alkaloid from the poppy plant. Um, so they isolated morphine within within that poppy plant. And then heroin uh, taken from the... So heroin was named after the German word for strong because it's basically strong morphine. That's basically what heroin is. Um, basically was altered to double the potency of morphine. Uh, or a little bit more than that. I mean, obviously, what we were comparing it to earlier was oral morphine. There's other ways to take morphine. Um, if you have it in the IV, it's going to be stronger than if you take it orally. So that's something to keep in mind. So it doubled the strength. And so the heroin that people typically use, like Mikey was talking about, is often injected. Right? It's something people use needles and inject straight into the veins. Um, so... It was used in the early 20th century as a cough medicine. So this is kind of crazy. Heroin was a drug you could get prescribed for a cough in around like 1910. At that point in time, that was a drug that was commonly prescribed for, for a cough. Um, that that kind of really gives you an idea of how much our understanding of these drugs has changed in the last 100 years even. Like... Heroin is, that's lunacy. Like, that's lunacy that, you know, you're coughing, you have, like, maybe a cold, and you get prescribed heroin as the drug to help you with that. That's uh, ridiculous. But that was the case in the early 20th century. Um, so another drug we're going to get into here is oxycodone, which is similar in potency to morphine. Um, it's the opioid that's active in oxycontin. All right, so um, Oxycontin is the drug that really, in many ways, started this opioid crisis. So Purdue Pharma took Oxycodone and used a slow-release formula they had, previous, they had used in their previous drug, MS Cotton, called the Cotton Process, to create Oxycontin. So the idea with this is that 
they would take oxycodone, this opioid, and they would have this formula around it that would hopefully create a slow release. So rather than getting all this, uh, all the drug at once, it would come and slowly release in your bloodstream over 12 hours to give you pain relief, but hopefully not the same high that you would get with a drug like heroin or, or strong morphine that's not being uh, regulated in the same way with this cotton, cotton process, right? Um, so that's, that's kind of the idea behind this oxycontin drug that was started by Purdue Pharma. Well, they marketed it as a far less addictive opioid with great use for pain relief. As this drug was released, Purdue Pharma wrote a label approved by the FDA saying that addiction was extremely rare with Oxycontin. All right, so the guy from the FDA, his name is Dr. Curtis Wright, um, a couple years after approving this label, this misleading label, found himself working for Purdue Pharma. If that doesn't um, give you the willies, then I don't know what does. This is a, a regulator from the government that is supposed to be protecting the public safety of of food and drugs that are being administered to the American people, right? And they're supposed to be protecting us um, at all costs and, and, and being as upfront and honest about the dangers of these things, um, you know, as possible. And what happens is this guy who create, who um, with Purdue Pharma releases this label that, that says that this drug is extremely non-addictive becomes an employee of the same pharmaceutical company and he's making well into the six figures. They're paying him like hundreds of thousands of dollars just a couple years after he wrote this label. Um, that's really sketchy to say the least. Um, if you do some more research, if you watch this uh, Dope Sick show, they'll go more into that, but it's... I mean, that's some scary stuff, guys. Like, if if we are not taking um, food and drug regulation seriously and we are being misled in what we are putting into our bodies um, by the government who we hope are, are there to help us, right, um, then who are we to trust at that point? That's, that's, that's kind of where we're at with that. So this guy, Dr. Curtis Wright, uh, a couple years after approving this misleading label, found himself working for Purdue Pharma, making well into six figures. The guy at Purdue Pharma who really kind of um, le led the operations and led the, the marketing and distribution of this drug um, is a guy by the name of Richard Sackler. Um, and his family is also basically the people who own and lead Purdue Pharma. Um, they use this label and other misleading marketing tactics to convince, to convince doctors all over the country that this drug was far less addictive than it actually was. Okay, so something to keep in mind with the, with the cotton process is, so they put like basically this residue on the pill that made it so that it would slow release. Well, that wasn't really hard to get around. Um, and people weren't really aware of this. If you put your put the pill in like your mouth and just let your saliva dissolve 
for like a minute around this pill, that slow release formula would fade off and you could get the full potency of the drug as it enters your system. So this wasn't a very effective way um, to prevent the addictive side of this drug. They marketed it as if it was this incredible change and that opioids, you know, they used to be super addictive, but because of this formula, you know, it was not addictive. But this really isn't that huge of a change. I mean, yes, there's something there that's going to hopefully help it slow release. But anybody who wanted to get around that very easily could. Okay. So that's something to keep in mind here. Um, so as doctors began prescribing this drug across the United States, many people became addicted. So the interesting thing, so in this country we have for-profit pharmaceuticals, right? So these drug companies, the way that they make money is that their drug gets prescribed by doctors, and so it's used. So that's why, right, we have the drug commercials that we do. Often they're like, tell your doctor about this drug, see if they're into it. You know, a lot of these prescription-based um, drugs are are coming from, you know, either we're telling our doctors we've heard about it and we want to give it a shot, or the doctors are telling us about it because they feel like that, that we are in a position to benefit from this drug. So what Purdue Pharma did is they very much targeted the doctors with their marketing. They would write, you know, different, they would provide different charts, they would provide um, fun weekends where they would talk about the efficacy of the drug and what it could do, um, so that these so they basically like have these conferences that um, prescripting doctors would come out to. They'd have a good time and then they'd hear all about the efficacy of this drug OxyContin. Um, and so there, there is a major incentive for these companies to convince doctors of the efficacy of their drug. And if they aren't being honest, right, they can mislead these doctors if the doctors aren't super well-educated, which when you're a practicing doctor and you're trying to, you know, um, work with people, um, it, it can be probably pretty easy to um, not get re-educated all the time on the updates in, in the medical industry and, and in pharmaceuticals, right? So as this new drug's coming out, all these salesmen, sales reps, and, and the people behind Purdue Pharma are, are fighting and calling in every which way to educate these doctors that this drug is non-addictive. It's different than any other opioid they've seen before because of that slow-release process. But they're overselling how good that slow-release process works, how hard it is to, or how easy it is to get around, really. Um, and so that's kind of what, what leads to a lot of doctors, you know, who are being told, you know, oh, this is an FDA label saying it's not addictive. These are charts that are approved by the FDA, whether or not they were, um, you know, varied in a lot of cases, but a lot of, a lot of the documents they were showing these doctors weren't. Um, and so they, they did this great marketing campaign that, um, led a lot of doctors to believe that this was not a very addictive drug, right? And so as doctors began prescribing this drug across the United States, many people became addicted. Um, this drug was first developed in the mid to late 90s 
um, w with Purdue Pharma. Um, it started to get widespread use through the late 90s and into the early 2000s, and that's where we begin to see a lot of the addiction come out of this drug, OxyContin. So, as people took OxyContin for longer periods of time, they began to grow a tolerance to their drug, which reduced its efficacy, right? The efficacy of the drug to relieve uh, pain. So that's the big thing um, to think about here, guys, is these opioids, while they do have this euphoric um, side effect and they can be used recreationally to get a really good high, the thing that they're doing a lot of times is they're, they're very good at helping in pain relief, right? So a lot of people, um, Dope Sick really explores a lot of people in mining communities would get into accidents in, in mines. And so, you know, maybe they have a back injury. And they're looking for relief from that while well, their doctor might prescribe them oxycontin and that would be a, a drug that would help for a short period of time um and it would do a really good job but then you know a couple months into it they build up a tolerance and then they need to double up on that prescription uh to get the same effect right um and so Honestly, one of the, the interesting and crazy things that Purdue did um, was they talked about a, a, a thing called pseudo-addiction. So basically false or fake-looking addiction within patients. And they said that um, basically what it was was people were not getting enough of the drug to, um, to satisfy their needs or to relieve the pain. And so the, the answer was to, to double the dose, to increase the dosage so that people are feeling fine again, um, but they're not actually addicted to the drug. It's just they need more of the drug because it's not doing its job. Well, how that's not addiction, um, you could ask anybody. That's pretty crazy, but you know that's what Purdue was, was telling people about. Um, and so this led patients to... Um, seek increasing doses of the drug and many times when the drug became more expensive patients began to look for alternatives like the often illegally trafficked drug heroin which was cheaper with increased potency right so this drove an increase in demand for illegally trafficked heroin or stronger legal drugs like fentanyl um so basically as people are getting prescribed this drug for pain throughout the country, they're starting to get addicted. Um, they realize that they're addicted at a certain point. Uh, a lot of the doctors are being told, you know, this is not addictive, so this isn't like this doesn't line up, right? And so, as the people realize they're addicted, um, they need more of the drug or a, a more potent version of the drug, which is why often a lot of people turn towards heroin and then. Um, some people, you know, even eventually fentanyl. Um, and, you know, the other part of this too is, is sometimes people, you know, who are dealing heroin because it's illegally trafficked would cut it with fentanyl. And so some people would unknowingly take fentanyl and could die from that. And that's, that's some really scary shit. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of the um, use of 
of these opioids is brought about in the, in the belief that this oxycontin drug that's getting prescribed for pain is less addictive because of the slow release process, right? So, yeah, this drove an increase in the demand for illegally trafficked heroin or stronger legal drugs like fentanyl. Purdue Pharma viewed cases of addiction as the fault of drug abusers rather than something that they had created. So often what they would do when they did see cases of addiction early on um, in, in the development of, or in, in the marketing of Oxycontin is they would say, hey, that guy is abusing the drug. It's his problem, not ours. We developed the drug, right? But he's just trying to abuse this drug for his own high. And they're, they're, they're pointing the blame at the user rather than taking any responsibility on their misleading marketing and, and, and how they have, you know, spread the good news about this drug supposedly, right? Um, so they campaigned around the idea that pain is the fifth vital sign. All right, so something that they did, Purdue, um, at this time, especially going into the late 90s, early 2000s, is they really built up the idea, um, the medical discussion on pain, what it is, how important it is. And so the more important that pain is viewed medically, right, the less that people are going to be scared about the uh, the possible issues with with these opioids that they're prescribing. Right. So Purdue Pharma started pain organizations throughout the country that advocated for the treatment of pain. And they used this to justify increased dosages of their drug. Um, so that's it's it's wild to think about. But basically um, building on this marketing campaign that this drug is non addictive. They're also trying to build a marketing campaign to doctors that pain is super important to the ability of someone to live. And so the more that pain is important, the more that they're going to look at uh, prescribing Oxycontin. And so one thing that comes um, in, this, in this time is what are called pill mills. Now, a pill mill is an illegal facility that resembles a regular pain clinic, but regularly prescribes painkillers without sufficient medical history, physical examination, diagnosis, medical monitoring, or documentation. Clients of these facilities usually receive prescriptions only against cash. Pill mills contribute to the opioid epidemic in the United States and are the subject of a number of legislative initiatives at the state level. That definition of pill mills was from Wikipedia. Um, you can look it up. All right, so these pill mills began popping up in places with relaxed regula regulations on pharmaceutical drugs. Um, so places like Florida, potentially, you know, places where the, the state legislature was really relaxed on these drugs, people could drive in there and they could basically tell these quote unquote doctors, um, hey, I want Oxycontin. I want 40, you know, 40s of Oxycontin. I want 80s of Oxycontin. And they would pay cash to these doctors 
uh, in exchange for the drugs that they wanted. It's basically, you know, a drug dealer, but um, made to look like a legal medical facility, a pain relief center. These pain relief centers are, or uh, pain clinics are coming up over the uh, across the country um, as places that people are going to, right? And so this growing wave of opioid addiction in many ways started by Purdue Pharma in the mid to late 90s has led to nearly 500,000 deaths due to opioid-related overdose in the 21st century in the United States. For comparison, that's at least double the deaths related to drunk driving in the same time. So this is, this is pretty wild. I mean, as this drug um, begins to be prescribed, it just, what it does on, on a macro level, it's just crazy to look at through through the United States because it it creates this market for stronger illegal opioids such as heroin. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a legal version of heroin, but a lot of times it's illegally trafficked uh, for the most part. Um, and you know, it, it, it's just crazy if you watch Crime of the Century. Um, they even get into this company called Insys, which is a fentanyl company, and they would basically bribe doctors to prescribe fentanyl to people. And it's it's this um, culture of greed and wealth that doesn't really care what the what the impact is, what the consequences are for what they're doing. They are making money. The sales representatives who are talking to doctors on behalf of Purdue Pharma made a ton of money, but they're also being misled by the pharmaceutical company that they work for. So it really goes back on these pharmaceutical companies misleading people about these drugs in a way that drastically impacts the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions really, in this country. And all in the name of greed, all in the name of wealth. Because if if they use these drugs, Oxycontin, fentanyl, in the ways that would ethically make sense um, at the proper times for pain relief, uh, fentanyl really would be usually probably for like cancer patients near the end of their life, it would make sense for that. But if they only use it for that, um, the drug companies that manufacture these drugs are not going to make that much money on these drugs. So what do they do? They create the market for these drugs because they want to make billions of dollars. That is what inevitably happens in this, um, you know, in this specific part of the pharmaceutical industry. I'm not saying every drug is like this. This is the story of Purdue Pharma and of the opioid crisis. Um, doesn't have to be the story about every place in the pharmaceutical industry, but it's something to keep in mind. The greed and the wealth that's at stake is, is being prioritized in light of the consequences, right, that, that these decisions and these drugs are, are creating. So that's kind of the basic picture of the opioid crisis I wanted to paint today. Um, I want to leave you with one last thought here. Um, this is something I was thinking about. Um, 
Okay, so I think it's important we consider our deep desire for fulfillment as human beings. We want to both experience positive emotions and feel like we have lived a life of substance. These two desires are interconnected. We can manipulate ourselves to experience short bursts of fleeting happiness through drugs, alcohol, sex, and cool experiences. Yet I think what we truly crave is a life that is substantive slash meaningful and long-term joyful. Joy is a long-form, subtle happiness that we can experience through our whole life while while still dealing with the daily struggles that inevitably come with the human condition. These short bursts of pleasure and happiness merely scratch the itch that is our deeper desire for long-form joy. Living a, a loving and grateful life built on truth over extended time is arguably the best understanding we have for the path to deep joy that we so desire. So that's kind of what I want to leave you with. I, I think it's important to consider um, what people are looking for in this life, what we want. We want to live a life that we feel fulfilled by. We want to f- live a life that we feel is important. And we want to have positive emotions, positive feelings and experiences. And so I think we take the shortcut a lot of times. I know I do a lot of times. Um, it could be with uh, hookah, um, caffeine, other things. There's plenty of things that you can do to take the shortcut towards you know, a quick moment of happiness. Um, but it, it merely scratches the itch of what we really desire. I, I, I do believe that. What we desire is that long-form joy, and I think the only way to really find that in this life is is through living a life that is both loved and loving, and living a life that is full of gratitude and built on truth. And I think, um, I think finding a worldview where one can can see the world through that lens um, is is a big part of that as well. So that's what I wanted to leave you with. Um, if you li- if you got to this point, guys, thanks a lot. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, you know, if you ever have any questions or feedback or things like that, reach out to me. Um, but yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys.